Fußballers, welcome to the OMR Podcast. Every once in a while we put out a new episode and it's that time again. Our friend, a serial founder from Hamburg, Germany, Eric Siegmann, he spoke to Nate Silver. Nate Silver, obviously one of the biggest names in data analysis, in number crunching, the founder of 538. Um, him and Eric, they spoke during the OMR Festival a couple of weeks ago and discussed misconceptions between predicting and forecasting sports and politics and why um, Nate's greatest failure in 2016 was not even a failure. Enjoy! All right. Live from the OMR 18 Rockstars Festival. Um, it's a great pleasure to have you here, Nate. Nate Silver. Thank you. I'm uh, happy, to, happy to be here. It's great. Thank you. You just came off the stage. Um, yeah. Um, I already humbled to, to have the opportunity to have this, this little podcast session with you. Um, you've been acclaimed as the Galileo of uh, the number crunchers or the new Oracle of Delphi. Um, how is, first of all, how you, you just recently arrived at Hamburg. Did you have an impression on the OMR 18 festival? Because I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm just kind of fresh off the boat. Yeah. So to speak, where I mean, I'm, people seem really smart and like I'm impressed and like it's quite visually impressive. People might not know if they're not here, but like there's a lot going on. It's like banging and like clanging and like there's a lot of you know a lot of sponsorships and so it's kind of in your face. Yeah. Very much. Right. You know, it's not it's not it's not subtle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sure is. Um, it sure isn't. Um, you're very demanded speaker and I. You have many public appearance in, in TV on, on, on the stage and off the stage. And of course, you are not only a sci data scientist, but also a journalist, if I may say so. Um, how, how, could you say any difference of your observations speaking in Europe or in, in Germany specifically compared to the US? I mean, I think people in some ways here ask different questions about data security and data privacy that yeah. we're starting to ask now in the US, but have been asked in Europe for a longer period of time. Um, I think people here are a little bit more uh, skeptical about kind of large corporations and kind of their role. I mean, less so in Germany than other parts of Europe. I mean, yeah. Germany and America, I think, are, I mean, I think America is quite Germanic in its outlook in some ways, frankly. Um, but but still, but yeah, it's a, it's a somewhat different audiences, I think. All right, let's let's maybe start with with you as a person, as an entrepreneur. Uh, is it right to say that you financed your college with being a very professional poker player? Yeah, sort of. So that's how I kind of broke out of. So I had a corporate job coming out of college, working as a what's called a transfer pricing consultant, which is not very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and eventually began playing poker. Um, there was kind of a poker bubble or poker boom during the 2000s, and that enabled me to make a fair amount of income and, and quit, and eventually got bored of, well, not got bored of poker, I started losing, went from winning to losing, uh, and before I lost all the money I had won, found a new passion, which was, um, which was what we, we call data journalism, so I founded a site called 538, um, 538 is in the Electoral College, which is the number of electoral votes we have in the United States. Oh, that explains the... Uh, yeah, it's, the, the, it's a bit obscure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we have an audience that likes the obscure um, and had no idea that that would find a big market. But, like, people were interested in a more data-oriented perspective on, on American politics because there was so much punditry and there was so much stuff that was, like, not evidence-driven. You know, assertions yeah. that were based on inside gossip that didn't really hold up that well. And so that proved to be like surprisingly popular. Um, we of course have had like a number of pretty um, 
remarkable and interesting elections in the United States. So I founded 538 in 2008, which was the election where we had, first of all, Hillary Clinton against Barack Obama in the primary, and then Obama became president, first African-American president in the United States. And so it was a moment when, um, and Obama's team, of course, was also quite data-driven in their yeah. outlook toward campaigning. So it was kind of being in the right place at the right time. What is it fair to say that the 2008 election was was kind of the starting point of data-driven campaigning and prediction as well, uh, as like a new generation of, of polling and, and predicting. So it's not it's not quite fair. I think it's it's halfway true. Um, right. You know, under George Bush, Karl Rove was his campaign guru, and they were very they, they were fairly data-driven. I mean, I think 2008 was a change for media coverage, right. um, where media there had often been like lots of misunderstanding of polls and margins of error and probabilities and a lot of mischaracterization. So it kind of hit the mainstream media in 2008. But campaigns have always been fairly data-driven. I mean, you're trying to, the problem is you're trying to like reach a fairly small segment of swing voters in the United States. I mean, the United States is not like Germany where we have, where there are six or seven parties, right? It's like there are two major parties. People are very polarized between the parties. And so only 10% of the country are really swing voters. And of those 10%, they only matter in a few states that are swing states because the Electoral College. Yeah. Um, so therefore, you're trying to find kind of needles in haystacks. I'm not sure if that idiom yeah. translates here, but you're trying to find people who are few and far between. And so therefore, it kind of necessitates a more potentially data-driven approach. Yeah. Maybe it's just the, 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 the tipping point of the 2008 election because, well, from a European perspective that was the first uh, election or post-election that was the first time when when those data scientists uh, of the equivalent of the teams uh, toured uh, throughout well, yeah, Europe yeah, uh, yeah, afterwards yeah. and also you you became s some kind of at least famous in, in, in Europe as well because you um, you and your company predicted uh, 49 of 50 uh, yeah. states uh, accurately yeah. um, so that was also some kind of boost of, of yeah of I think it all got kind of tied together in people's minds right yeah. and this is also a time when like I mean in sports there was also a lot of um, excitement over over statistics and sports. Yeah. Um, you know, the Boston Red Sox had won the World Series after many years of not doing so in 2004, and so that was like uh, that was quite exciting to people, and they had taken a very statistically oriented yeah. approach. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of when like statistical analysis hit the mainstream is, is yeah. one way to put it. All right. Even though there'd always been some of it in campaigns in the background. Yeah. yeah before we, we, we enter into that area that you, of course, you're not only actively um, researching and, and also writing and publishing regarding uh, politics, but also uh, regarding sports. Um, so just to continue that road and also maybe to explain what uh, 538 does um, from from after the the 2008 election, you even improved your success with the 2012 election and having 50 of 50 states. Yeah, right? although I, I should say I don't think that's the right way to measure our forecasts. Yeah, because we make forecasts that are probabilistic. Yeah, right. Um, and so we think the right way to measure things is if you say something has an 80% likelihood of occurring, then over the long run, does it occur about 80% of the time? Yeah. And so therefore, you know, you know, within that 49 of 50 or 50 out of 50, you have some calls that are basically 50-50, you know, 
and then so you shouldn't get really either credit or blame for that. Because what we're doing is not prediction. Prediction's bullshit. <laughs> forecasting is what we're doing, and forecasting is um, is probabilistic, and forecasting is about preparing one for risk and uncertainty. Yeah. Um, Maybe you could elaborate on, on, on the very, very important difference between predicting and forecasting. So forecasting, by the way, I think is a Germanic root word, and so yeah. it's, you know, and whereas predict is like Roman or Latin, I guess. Yeah, it is. So there's some cultural differences here. Um, but yeah, you know, forecasting, like I said, number one, a forecast is probabilistic, but it, literally the root word, like forecast, it means like to prepare for uncertain conditions. If I don't, you know, I'm not an etymologist, but like it kind of goes back to like, whereas prediction means like to declare or to say there is a Latin root word. Yep. Um, and so they like literally have, they're kind of different concepts that get conflated. But like, but to me, the world is not a terribly predictable place. Um, but if you're rigorous, including the use of data yep. in analyzing the world, then you can outline a blueprint of possibilities and put weights on those possibilities and probabilities on those possibilities that, that over the long run are reasonably accurate. Um, and so that's the, that's the goal, actually. It's not to predict because there's, I mean, you know, it's about kind of saying what can we measure and how much uncertainty is there. Right. Coming back to the 2012 elections and... Um, I am also interested in understanding your entrepreneurial uh, development. So, so what, what was the impact um, on on five thirty eight after two thousand twelve? I mean, there was a lot of excitement around it, obviously, and you know, five thirty eight had previously been um, start out independent. In two thousand twelve, we were licensed by the New York Times, yeah. um, and then two thousand thirteen, my contract with the New York Times expired, and like. And we wanted to do something that was bigger. And so we went from having like two or three people to, uh, to what we have now, which is a team of about uh, two or three dozen people, so around 30 people. Um, you know, combining, I had previously spent before 538, had done a lot of work in sports. Yeah. And so, you know, we now are employed by ESPN, which is a big sports programming network. Um, you sold your company to ESPN in which year? In 2013. All right. 2014. Yeah. Take that back. Yeah. yeah. Um, and have been there for um, for four years and change now, yeah. or 2013. Yeah. So yeah, it was like it's been almost five years. All right. Um, and now we're looking forward toward our next step, which is another another discussion. But all right. Yeah. Are, are you are you? Do you want to talk about the next step? I'm happy to. I mean, so we're 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 kind of in the phase where we have a couple of different offers for 538, and some of this has been reported publicly, and um, and we own. I still own part of it, and ESPN yeah. is own part of it, so we're kind of yeah. working cooperatively to figure out um, what the best next step is. All right. Um, yeah. Oh, but it's, it's stressful. Yeah, I, I can have imagine. Some phone calls to make, you yeah. know, once, once people in America wake up. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> it can't be a pure vacation for me. I have phone calls to make later. So. Yeah. Maybe that's very interesting. Um, uh, maybe we'll, be, we'll talk about that issue a little later, but um, it is, I think it's very, like you say, your audience um, likes the obscure, um, the, the mixture of politics and and sports was within your first DNA of, of, of yeah. uh, 538. Uh, what, what does politics and sports do have in common? Um, I mean, what they have in common is that you can 
apply statistical modeling to understand both of them better. I mean, they're they're yeah. I mean, they're more different than they are alike, in some ways. Um, sports is a lot easier to predict, in some sense, in the sense that like sports have a defined set of rules, so they're closed systems. Um, you know, they don't change that much over time. Yes, they evolve. I'm a basketball fan. Basketball, if you watch an NBA game today, is much different than if you watch a game uh, 30 years ago or something. But, like, the rules and the structure stay the same. And so that makes them kind of easier to model. Politics, there are some things that are sports-like. You know, so the Electoral College in the United States abides by a certain set of rules. They're not open-ended. And so although the parties change and the candidates change, there's some degree of predictability there. Um, but kind of broader political trends, that's not my job to forecast. I mean, we wouldn't really try to forecast, right? What we're saying is, like, if we have polling data and other types of data like economic data, then at short time horizons, so anywhere from a day to six months in advance of election, then we can build a forecast and say, how do those polls translate into the probability of each party winning? Um, that doesn't mean, though, that politics is inherently a predictable enterprise that you would necessarily have predicted the rise of nationalism. For example, in Europe, the United States, we can debate whether that's now become over predicted or not. But yeah. like, you know, but so I'm not like someone who's trying to predict broad political currents. I'm saying I'm trying to like define a problem which is a solvable problem, right? To me, the problem of like, we want to take an empirical measure of how accurate polls really are so we can distinguish between when a candidate has a 99% chance versus a 70% chance versus a 50% chance. We can do that. That's a solvable yep. problem. Um, and in sports, like a lot of problems are, are solvable in that sense. It doesn't mean we know who's going to win the game, but we can put kind of rough probabilities around things, right? You know, around which team's most likely to win the World Cup, for example. Yeah. Aren't... Don't they also have in common politics and sports that the possibilities and the tools we can use today in data science aren't or are maybe underutilized by by reporters, journalists, um, yeah, by, by society for, in general? For sure. I mean, um, although it's changed a lot in sports in the United States, and I'm not sure about the experience over in Europe as much. In um, soccer as well. Yeah. In the U.S., kind of sports now are quite analytically driven, and people are pretty smart about it. Yeah. In politics, you definitely have a clash where political journalists are not very data literate. Yeah. Um, and they see a more analytical approach, frankly, as undermining their approach, which is based on inside information and gossip, yeah. sort of. And so there really is like a culture clash in politics between what we're trying to do and other political journalists. There's not that in sports. In sports, kind of everyone gets along a lot better and everyone realizes, hey, in sports you have a very well-defined bottom line. It's like, yeah. who wins, yeah. right? And so that tends to focus things a little bit more. Yeah. And you have games played, you know, every few days. Yeah. In politics, you've won an election every four years. And so you can be wrong about something and that can persist for a long time. Yeah, so it might be Is it fair to say that in sports it's easier to predict and also relatively easy to, to, to control the results and the root cause? It's easy. I mean, sports is like a 
the Platonic ideal of like it's easy to determine cause and effect. Again, it's yep. a closed it's a closed system. A limited yep. number of things can happen on a soccer pitch, right? Um, it's still amazing and wonderful and can be beautiful, but like it's like you know it makes it easier to like build a model for. Yeah, also the number of variables are limited. It's a finite number of, of variables. Yeah, and things are easily testable because again you can like have a theory in sports and if if you're right or wrong then that can be borne out over the course of a few games yep. or a few seasons at most in politics you might have a strategy but you only have one election like i said every four years and so it can take take a long time yeah nate i'm afraid we need to have to touch that issue of the 2016 elections yeah um uh what went wrong nothing went wrong <laughs> but this is why like this is why this is why probability is important yeah where our forecast said that Trump had about a 30% chance of winning. Yeah. To us, that's really valuable information because if you had read the New York Times or if you looked at other forecasts, they would say that it was almost impossible for Trump to yeah. win. Yeah. And so if you understand what we're doing, then that's highly valuable information to say that relative to what people are assuming, that Trump was a lot more likely to win than people may have thought. Yeah. And the reasons for that have to do with careful and more rigorous analysis of data. So number one, we have 50 states in the United States that all have votes in the Electoral College. Those states are not independent from one another. That if Trump beats his polls in one state, he's going to also beat his polls in, in other states. Yep. Um, number two, there were a high number of undecided voters, um, meaning 15 or 20 percent of the country went into the campaign in the last week not knowing who they're going to vote for. It's not the job of a poll to determine for a voter who says she's undecided who to vote for. So, so I think there's a lot of bullshit around uh around analysis of 2016 that the polls pointed toward a close race that either candidate could win yep and that's what happened the polls were actually about as accurate in 2016 as they had been historically so i think people misinterpreted that and journalists in the united states have their own biases yep. and were so sure that clinton would win that that colored their interpretation of the data and they thought they were being objective if you look at the data rigorously That was a close and competitive election, and the Trump result was not that surprising. The same thing happened with Brexit, where you yep. had a lot of journalists in the United Kingdom who ignored that the polls actually showed Brexit to be almost 50-50 in the polls. Yep. And so they were really shocked. That reflects yep. their biases and their misunderstanding of data. Yeah, I, that's a very interesting point because um, I took the time and just um, preparing um, this podcast, and I took all the, the video footage you gave because you, you've been a really public figure. Well, you are a public figure, a very popular public figure during this election. And um, even some, I think last week before before the actual elections, um, you've been talking, I think, I think it was on CNN, um, regarding the margin of error. And um, I had the feeling that you had a hard time to explain to journalists what, what a margin of error meant yeah. in, in polling. Yeah, look, so there are various reasons why there's a margin of error in polling. One being that a poll might ask 600 people or 1,000 people um, instead of the whole country, and so you have random sampling error. You also have the fact that some people don't decide until they're in the voting booth, so you have error introduced by undecided voters. And you have the fact that like polls actually do not reach a perfectly random sample. They desire to, but some people are more likely to respond to polls than others, and so therefore... Polls can have biases in a statistical sense that are larger than the, than the um, theoretical margins of error. 
And so, you know, historically, polls in the U.S. are off by an average of about three points. Yep. On average, about three points, which means yep. the margin of error is about plus or minus, um, you know, six points. Yeah. And so, therefore, when Clinton led by three or four points in the popular vote, also she did win the popular vote, but to use that as an example, that was not a safe lead. And when she was ahead by two points or three points or four points in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, ahead by maybe a point, if anything, in Florida, um, you know, none of those outcomes were really even outside the margin of error. So it's not even like, because yeah. there are times when you're outside the margin of error, but like if you had actually understood that polling is a pretty good tool, but that a two or three point race in the US, yeah. and our polls are better than some places, better than the UK, yeah. um, but a two or three point race is uh, either way gonna go to either candidate yeah. fairly often. Um, you also saw in the U.S. the race shifted over the last week of the campaign. So Clinton had had a lead that was about six or seven points as of mid-October. But then you had um, the FBI director come out with a statement, hey, we're yeah. reopening the Clinton investigation. Yeah. You had WikiLeaks. Yeah. You had, you know, and the Clinton campaign made mistakes too. I mean, yeah. they, the states they campaigned in were not the states they should have been campaigning in. So many uncertainties during during that election. Yeah, but like, but like, it's not the best example to use of the case where the data was way off because like if you have a candidate who's ahead by two points yeah. and the margin of error is five points, yeah. then that candidate's going to lose by two or three points fairly often. And, and it's, also, it's also important to note that Trump's win was very narrow. He lost the popular vote and he won, yeah. he won the key states by half yeah. a point to a point. Yeah. Um, if Trump had won by... 10 points, that's a different question. Then that's a question of, oh my gosh, the polls were way, way off. Yes. A miss outside the margin of error. Are these models accounting for that possibility properly? But like Trump narrowly winning when Clinton was narrowly ahead and there's a large margin of error is, is just not very surprising. Yeah. The whole bigger picture from a macro level, Trump becoming president might be more surprising, right? Yes. But if you take the name off the polls, which is kind of what we're trying to do, right? In our model, it's like Democrat or Republican, and we don't come to any preconception based on whether it's Trump. So if you had had a different, more traditional Republican, I think people would have been more rational about the fact that, oh my gosh, this race has really, really tightened up in the last week of the campaign. Clinton's ahead, but barely. Yeah. You'd bet on her. But if you got two to one or three to one on Trump odds, then then much, much stranger things have happened than a candidate who's only slightly behind in the polls, winning under those circumstances. Yeah, all right. Um, like you mentioned, that there there have been biases um, on the journalist side. Um, what, what is your what is your tool to get your message across uh, across to, to be comprehensive but also uh, relevant and, and and precise in your in, in your messages? I mean, it's partly having a, an ongoing dialogue with readers, right? Um, we do better in. In longer format stuff. So if we, you know, we have a podcast, for example, 538 right. podcast, and like, you know, to be able to talk to people for 45 minutes or an hour at a time is valuable. To be able to have a dialogue with readers where you're running about the election every day and not just weighing in. And so, in some sense, you know, our enemy is like the kind of TV soundbite where people lose the context. Because I understand that, like, when you present numbers to people without the context, yep. then you're subject to all sorts of misconceptions because people have you know numbers trigger weird things in people's brains and, and different perceptions right so if I say 
Clinton has a 70% chance of winning and Trump has a 30% chance, then that means different things to different people. Some people might say 70%, that sounds really good, right? That's not what's meant by that. Yeah. You know, 30% likelihood of an event that yeah. would change American history or world history. Um, you know, even a 5% chance would be something that one would want to consider carefully. But like, but people don't always, people interpret numbers in different ways. So having a dialogue with readers in the form of written yeah. articles and and podcasts and stories you're able to tell is pretty important too. But, but is there a chance? Um, I think the majority of uh, your TV statements in in in, in large media outlets uh, was something like 90 seconds. How do you get your message across within 90 seconds? Well, maybe you don't. You know, I mean, I, I feel yeah. like I probably do less TV than I used to because yeah. um, I think it's extremely important, kind of how you frame your message. Absolutely. And I, I don't believe that, like, but I also established so I have like the privilege, I guess, of like kind of picking and choosing a little bit. But like, I don't necessarily want to go on TV and have 90 seconds, right? I want someone to seek out me and that I want to kind of present the information with the context that I know needs to be included to aid understanding and not misunderstanding. If you're going to have 90 seconds and you need to have like a, a host or a producer who's done homework and who, and who gets you, right? Yeah. Um, but TV is kind of a challenging medium, I think. In the narrow question of like expressing uncertainty in election forecasts, it'll now be easier in the United States because we could just say, hey, remember Trump. Yep. You know, remember Clinton was a little bit ahead, but not that far ahead. And yep. we said there was a certain chance, so be careful. So like in that narrow sense, like Trump will make it easier now for people to um, to understand the difference between um, a candidate who's ahead and a candidate who's a sure thing. Yep. Um, but you know, but not every communications tools equally adept to have a message that requires like a little bit of of nuance and complexity in the last in the last two and a half years we were learned what fake news are yeah. and we were learned well, well that even a new dimension of interpretation and being biased so it's uh, pro for the for the large masses is getting tougher and tougher and of course for the journalists as well um, and we we just recently had that reissue of the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal. Yeah. Um, you just recently tweeted that um, campaigning in that case couldn't really move the needle. Could yeah. you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, look, the Clinton campaign had invested like four or five times more money than the Trump campaign. Um, And it didn't do them much good, obviously, right? Yes. Both in terms of how they allocated resources, but like in terms of like, they didn't persuade very many swing voters. In fact, most swing voters actually went to Trump. It's kind of circular, but like, yeah. um, you know, it's probably because in the U.S., I mean, campaigns are such a big media phenomenon where um, where advertising is not as powerful as what we call earned media. So if you get kind of The way the press covers the campaign is more important, even with all the money spent on advertising. Um, but also, people are very partisan in the U.S., and so you, there aren't that many swing voters necessarily. But yeah, I mean, people don't want to admit that like campaigns don't make all that much difference in a world of mass communication. It's a probably unpopular message. I, I think I well, I, let I, me be I careful. Wave, but um, Na and for national camp, local campaigns, sure, then campaigning matters. But national yeah. campaigns. Yeah, less so. Do you think that uh, micro-targeting 
no matter what the quality and the sources of, of data might have been. Do you think that micro-targeting could really affect the outcome of a presidential campaign uh, election? Maybe at, maybe at the margin. I mean, it might swing at 1% of the vote or something. Again, this isn't a presidential general election campaign. In like an obscure race for the U.S. House of Representatives, it could be a lot more important. But like people are mostly making decisions, presidential campaigns, based on information they hear from the media and information they hear from their friends and their peer groups. And so the campaigns just don't have that much of the ability to influence relative to the messages that people are, are seeing and hearing every day. And in the U.S., the fact that like during the Republican primary, where you had 16 or 17 candidates and Trump had was on TV constantly, like to buy up, I mean, he was on CNN as much as all the other candidates combined. Yeah. Um, to buy that type of airtime would have cost billions and billions of dollars, you yeah. know, and so, and so media in the U.S. context is more important than what the campaigns do. Yeah. Coming, uh, well, for, in, in the online marketing ecosystem, um, we've been discussing this for the last two years, whether micro-targeting or even psychographically gained profiles can really have mm -hmm. such an impact. They, of course, there's no question that they might have an impact, but to what extent micro-targeting might change a, a decision, whether it's an election or a, a uh, buying behavior or whatever. Um, especially if um, the nature of a campaign is that it's for both parties is besides the budget. It's an even leveling, even, even level playing field. So, um, so there is no there, there's a symmetry of 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 of, of tools. Uh, maybe a difference in, in in buying power. But we've been in the yeah. Cambridge Analytica case. It was a question of data da data science. And uh, as you said, it was is, is rather a big salesman job, but not a real. Uh, analytical job is that is that correct to say? Yeah, I mean there was not much demonstration that their psychographics actually translated into persuading voters. And by the way, the Ted Cruz campaign used them before Trump, and the Cruz campaign lost to Trump and wound up using Cambridge Analytica less and less. And the Trump campaign did not use Cambridge Analytica particularly heavily toward the end of the campaign. They had their own data scientists and data gurus working for the campaign. And so, yeah. like, so to me, it's a little ironic that. Cambridge Analytica, which is not the smartest firm, and I think kind of, you know, it's just kind of, they're good at selling themselves and kind of putting the sheen of, like, data-driven campaigning on themselves. Um, but to me, it's like a little bit of a overblown scandal, I guess. I also think that, like, it's good that we have more scrutiny of, of Facebook and the role of, you know, of data security. So I think it's, like, a good conversation that we're having for like slightly the wrong reason, which is oh. still a good conversation, but. Yeah, but um, how, how is your take on how journalists or media in general um, did, did reflect to that Cambridge Analytica scandal? One, one, one thing, of course, there, um, the second wave, uh, first wave was initiated in Europe by, by yeah. a Swiss uh, journalist. Uh, second wave well, was this whistleblower thing uh, with the Observer um, and the New York the New Yorker or New York Times? New York Times. I, I mean, there's been lots of good work yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, but um, do you think that there's a fair or um, exact f coverage of the actual root causes um, of, the, of the scandal? 
I think people overrate how much impact Cambridge Analytica had, and I think they overrate how sophisticated what they were was doing. And there's also like, you know, collecting various information sources on someone and trying to give them a score for their propensity to vote for one candidate or another. It's not that different than what campaigns have been doing for a long time than what the Obama campaign did, for example. And so I think there is a tendency um, to, because Trump did it or because some right-wing candidate in another part of the world did it, right, then the same techniques that were praised when, uh, when Obama did it, similar techniques are, are criticized when a right-wing candidate does it. So I think there's a little bit of hypocrisy or inconsistency there. And by the way, the truth is that maybe it should have been criticized when Obama did it. Not because it wasn't effective, but because cause Obama was a lot more effective than Cambridge Analytica. But because, like, you know, you're kind of invading people's privacy and collecting data on things. People don't know they're living a data trail when they subscribe to a magazine or when they use their credit card to purchase something or when they're online, obviously. And Obama, you know, was very smart about, like, scraping together information in different ways um, and using it to kind of correlate and predict voter behavior. Um, Cambridge Analytica, I think, had this personality profile thing that didn't really add that much value, but it was a good marketing gimmick. Yep. Obviously, fa Facebook, it's a bit shocking that, um, that it was easy enough to get access not just to opt-in data, but to your friends' data. I mean, that was a pretty big mistake that Facebook's going to be facing for a long time. Yep. But that has more to do with Facebook than Cambridge Analytica, really. You know, to me, I wish that people just edited Cambridge Analytica out of the story. I think that's like a red herring that people like to use because it was, you know, Trump aligned. Talk about Facebook and, and Facebook's data security issues. Also the effect that like Facebook's newsfeed algorithm has on um, on the news that people see um, and the effects that that has potentially. But to me, that's the more interesting story. Um, less of a scandal again and more of a story about the fact that, look, um, as a very rough approximation Facebook probably serves up 25% of the news content that people feel or yep. see in the United States. Um, so that 25% is now determined by algorithms designed by coders in Silicon Valley as opposed to editors who decide what's on a broadcast or what appears in a newspaper. Um, you can argue positively or negatively for that, right? You can say, okay, maybe I don't want someone to edit out the content I see, but like that's a big change where you displace who controls 25% of the delivery of media content, um, that's a huge effect on the way that people kind of perceive politics in the world. But isn't that a paradigm shift uh, which is tied to the shift from broadcast media like TV to, to digital marketing itself? Yeah, but I do, I do think different digital platforms, I mean, we run a, you know, a publication and like the traffic you get from Facebook is very different than what you get from Twitter and both of those are very different than what you get from Google, um, let alone smaller communities, Reddit or whatnot. Um, people tend to lump together all different forms of electronic media or all different social media, and the characteristics of the platform are a, are a big deal and like quite different from one another. So I, I hate when people use the term social media. If you're talking about Facebook, say Facebook. If you're talking about Twitter, As a platform. say, say yeah. Twitter. But they're not particularly good analogies to one another. Yeah, all right. Do, uh, for the next election, is is data science making the difference? Is is a better data science science team really able to to have a 
to have an influence on the, on the, on the question who is going to be the next president of the of the United States? I think at the early stage, I mean, you're going to have in the Democratic race probably a primary featuring 15 or 20 candidates. Um, and so in that environment, then, yeah, turning out your voters is incredibly important. So yeah. the early stage, it'll matter. Yeah. The late stage, when Democrats pick their candidate, and whether it's Trump or someone else, right, I mean, you might as well do it. You have a billion dollars to spend. But, like, but again, I'm not saying it's ineffective. I'm just saying that, like, There is so much attention in the United States to politics, and people have such strong views based on media coverage and what their peer groups think that, like, you know, you're fighting against a, a very, very strong tide, and it doesn't make that much difference. Yeah. So you want to wait where, when the current is neutral, and then even a little push can, like, change the outcome. That's when it has more influence. So, if if I understand you right, so you, is it fair to say that it will or might have an influence on the on the upper funnel of the selection process, but is less less influential on the on the later stage? That's of a this? good m metaphor. Yeah, you can extend the metaphor to say kind of once you get momentum, kind of or current flowing in the river or something, then like it becomes quite powerful. But like the upper funnel area, that's where people maybe don't spend enough attention because it's not as sexy right and it's a long way away yeah. from having like actual results but the the upper kind of initial funnel and likewise with any type of narrative right like we have found um at 538 over the years covering stories where we're involved somehow stories about us because we're also yeah. a business yeah. you know the upper funnel is where you can have an influence on perceptions once something it's going You're screwed if the narrative is a way that you think is unfair or unflattering or whatever else, right? But if you kind of change the narrative at the start and are careful about that, then then that can have an influence down the road. Oh, very interesting. Do you have any practical use cases forward-looking in your in your very famous book, um, The Signal and the Noise? Um, you're you're mentioning many many examples from different situations different verticals and um, where where data science and and uh, predictions can can make a huge difference uh, you've been writing about the filter bubble in bubbles bubbles in general predicting bubbles etc um, maybe in the area of, of, of marketing online marketing uh, or in in, in in businesses itself, where do you see the, the next big thing in, in data science to be applied? So I'm a little uh, worried in some sense about about the obsession with machine learning. Yeah. Um, because I think that like, you know, again, I'm a traditionalist where I'm a guy who says data science should be hypothesis driven. Where you have a hypothesis, you collect evidence to test it Ideally, you perform an experiment that involves making a prediction. It's all the scientific method, and then you kind of see how things played out. But you're concerned about causality and the directionality, and you're concerned about the why of things, right? Yeah. Um, so I worry about the notion that people are like, this obviously kind of unfair stereotype of machine learning. But I worry about people are like, okay, I just need the what. I don't need to worry about the why. I think it's probably not that robust over time, and that it's not very adaptable when conditions change as compared to analyses that are based on, you know, regression analysis and are based on causal inference and are based on, like, building models that have strong priors that kind of reflect the structure of the real world. Um, so I think there's kind of too much obsession with with machine learning, and I think yeah. that's going to lead some marketing firms astray. All right. 
Well, what, what what do you do to attract skilled people to one once more for to, to to work with you? You said you employ something like 30, 30 people mm -hmm. um, at five thirty eight. Um, so, so maybe the same question like how do you attract uh, journalists and CEOs, CMOs um, to go towards yeah. well, those those important issues? Um, how do you make that attractive? I mean, we we mostly hire other journalists. Occasionally, we hire from academic tracks, or we, you know, we hired someone from Amazon a few years ago. So there are sometimes unconventional approaches that we can take. How well do you, well, journalists in general, don't seen well? So maybe a false generalization, yeah. but uh, journalists in general are. My understanding is that they're pretty qualitatively driven. How do you attract them to the other side of the world? So first of all, we only need 30 people out of, mm. you know, there are a hundred thousand practicing journalists yeah. in the United States. You yeah. know, second of all. It is pretty generational, where a lot of younger journalists are in programs now where they're taught data science or data journalism, yeah. and or they're taught computer science and they're teaching themselves coding, and or you know we have a young woman on an interactive team who is an English major and she just taught herself how to code and she's a brilliant coder. So people who are self-taught more, but that is generationally changing, right? Where we, um, you know, if we're hiring journalists who are five stages into their careers, then probably they didn't grow up with it and that's harder. But like but the journalists coming out of school or after their first job are are much more conversant in the language of data. Um, and so it's becoming an easier problem over time. But yeah, I mean you have to scrutinize people. You also have to figure out like not everything has to do not everyone has to do everything, right? You do have teams and so there can be ways to plug in people who have more traditional skill sets into a team that takes a non-traditional approach. What's the mixture of skills and profiles and capacity of, of, your, of, your, of your team? So about a third of the team are editors, about a third of the team are writers, and about a third of the team are, are interactive journalists, meaning they build, um, build models and they build interactives and, and data visualization tools. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and so that ratio is different, right? Yeah. Like most people, most journalistic shops have a lot of writers and reporters, a few editors, and like no interactive journalists. Um, and so for us, it's like less about the writing and more about the kind of presentation in different forms of media, including visual presentation and kind of curating and editing that content too. And like, and a lot of stories are very collaborative. Yeah. You have a very compelling style to, uh, of visualization. Uh, what's the secret behind that? Do you have a special tool? Is that um... a, a lot of work and like a, we have a very skilled team with, with, uh, nine or 10 people on it and kind of. Developing our own style over time. I mean, you know, I think, look, um, there are basic best practices when it comes to data visualization. One is that they have to be edited in the same sense that anything else has to be edited. And so you don't want too much information. You don't want too little information either, right? But like a lot of data visualizations are overly complicated um, and they add elements that just kind of confuse the picture. A lot of times people also use graphics and they don't need to when the graphic would actually be better just explained in a couple of sentences instead um you know thinking about interactivity obviously people um browse news content on all different types of platforms now and so a lot of the work is in having something that will look good on a mobile device and will also look good yeah. on a tablet and will also look good on a large screen and by the way it's not one size fits all yeah graphics um that we make for mobile often have information taken out of them where the hierarchy is different because 
you can put a ton of information on a small screen and pretend that people can zoom in. That's like not good editing. That's not kind of how people actually consume information naturally on a, on a mobile device. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, adopting it for six different browsers, browsers on several different platforms is where a lot of the hard work comes in. Yeah. Is, is that one of your more obvious uh, competitive advantage com compared to your competitors? Yeah, I know we have. I mean, there are only a handful of newsrooms in the United States that that really have big, robust data visualization teams. And so, you know, and they're most of the very large newspapers. They're most of the New York Times, the Washington Post and whatnot. And so, you know, we think our team is right up there competing with those teams, even though, like, we're a much, much, much smaller organization because it's very central to what we do. Yeah. Is there any secret technical tool you're using? Um, so it's not my team, right? I hire people to run that team. But, like, but no, it's a, it's a, we have a, a stack software. of tools that we've yeah. developed and software that we've kind of developed over time. Um, but yeah, you'd have to talk to talk to them. All right, great. All right, thank you very much. That was very interesting. Definitely, um, thank you guys. I, uh, we hope to welcome you again uh, next time. Cool, I appreciate um, it. And um, good luck for for all your entrepreneurial development. Uh, cool, um, it's exciting. It's stressful, but definitely exciting that, too. Yeah, and you're not an M and A type of entrepreneur, aren't you? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think you want to like. You know, basically, I haven't had a lot of control over the business side of my yeah. business over the last few years, and yeah. and maybe I'm a control freak, and so I want to have that control, even though it's more work. So that's what I'm trying to figure out in part. Maybe that's the reason why you have such a big impact in, yeah, in maybe. the industry. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. All right. Yeah. Thank Next. you, though. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Buzz.